Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Welcome to Season 5. This is where I'm supposed to do the horn. Da, 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 da. Five I, seasons. Just seems like yesterday that we were sitting right here to talk about Marie Antoinette, Episode 1. Oh my gosh. We've come a long way since then. Go back and listen to the episode. <laughs> Assuming I don't rip it off the internet. <laughs> Becca keeps threatening and I keep getting nostalgic. Well, we, we did something a little bit different for mm, three or four episodes this season. And we went to people who've been very kind to us over the past five seasons. They've been very supportive. They've offered us advice um, just for different reasons. They're just people that stuck in our minds as just being kind to us. So we asked them who they wanted us to cover. And so those women will be on this list. And I'm kind of excited about a couple of them. We've got uh, our fictional episode, which is one that Miss Beckett really, really wanted us to do. We've also got our guaranteed content poll, the candidates for which will go up shortly. And what we do, in case you're new, is we post five potential candidates for episode seven. And then... Everyone votes on them, and the winner gets to be episode seven. <laughs> That's right. So we don't get to pick it. You do, and we can tell you right now who they're going to be, so you get, can give it a little bit of thought. Usually we pick people that are requested a lot. Okay. Those people are Mitford Sisters, Eleanor Roosevelt, Coco Chanel, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, or Catherine the Great. I don't know that there's a clear winner this time. We shall see. We knew Jane Austen was going to win that year. Yeah, it didn't matter who was on the list with her. <sighs> but this year, it can be anybody's game. So get your voting finger ready. That'll come up here in the next couple weeks. So let's start now with our first episode of Season 5. And here's your 30-second summary. Carrie Nation took an axe, gave the bottles 40 whacks. When she smelled that demon rum, she hatchetized those boozy bombs. The end. Let's talk about Carrie Nation. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1846, the Mexican-American War began. Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning were wed. The Donner Party set up winter camp. Iowa became the 29th state. Carl Fabergé, Chef Charles Escoffier, Buffalo Bill were all born, and on November 25, 1846, Carrie Amelia Moore, who would later become Carrie Nation, was born in Girard County, Kentucky. Carrie, with an I-E, Amelia Moore, was the first child of George and Mary Moore, though her father had four other children from a previous marriage. At the time of Carrie's birth, Papa was an extremely wealthy man. He'd grown up in the Walnut Hill section of Lexington, Kentucky, and he was a landholder, and it must be said a slaveholder. He'd actually received his initial stake from his first father-in-law and had really parlayed it into a major operation. And what happened to his first wife? His first wife, Jane Boner, unfortunately <laughs> died. Poor Jane Boner. <laughs> Okay. So Mama, who grew up in a neighboring county, had been married before also. When still a very, very young woman, she'd married a man who got the anti-slavery fever and moved her to Illinois, where she had two sons, and then was almost immediately widowed. Now, some sources, including Carrie, say that the two boys died, but some, also including Carrie, <laughs> refer to these brothers later. Carrie's memoir is colorful, and it's got a lot of contradictory information in it, just like that. 
Well, so what was a woman alone to do? She had to come back to her parents' house, and I'm afraid there was probably great pressure brought to bear on her to marry this this rich man, twice her age, who needed a mother for his children. In no way do I think this was a love match. No, I don't either. Carrie actually, I believe, was very close to her father. She idolized him and called him her angel on earth. Well, Carrie and her mother, however, were not close. Something about Carrie and her tomboy ways her pheromones, we don't even know, set Mama off. Mama was always teetering on the edge of card-carrying crazy her whole life, but this got to the point where Papa just thought it was best that Carrie go live in the slave quarters. The slave named Liza, who had 17 children of her own and a scary, mean husband, became Carrie's actual parental figures. So Mama became this distantly viewed apparition, always with the fancy dresses, driving in a gilded carriage with livery driver and footman, or a footboy, since I think he was about 10 years old, <laughs> maybe. Um, I want to just mention something here. Carrie herself described hating her mother, who, quote, fancied herself a lady-in-waiting to Queen Victoria, and later, more hysterically, and again I quote, thought she was in fact Queen Victoria, Now, it is true that while he could, he indulged his wife's every whim. The proper role of a southern gentleman's wife was to be ornamental and mother of his children. And as he got poorer and poorer and more and more children came, she became more and more unhinged. Black melancholia is how it was described in one of the books I read. And Uh she always used to say, I have to get away from here. I have to get away from here. But I'm not sure if the Queen Victoria thing holds water. I mean, there is a history of, quote, going insane throughout the maternal side. Who knows what it was? Perhaps what you just said, that her, she thought she was at one station, and then fiscal responsibilities came in, and she wasn't at that station anymore. Mamas go crazy sometimes. (laughs) And that might exactly have been what happened. I mean, she did land herself in uh, insane asylum. Well, there is a time when kids are very, very little, when their love or need for you, at least, is pretty unconditional. I Uh think, and little Carrie must have tried very hard to be good enough for this mother who neglected her. But I can see when your mother is just enraged by the sight of you and throws plates at your head every time she sees you and chases (laughs) you away, that love would kind of turn to hate pretty quickly at a certain point. But Papa, she worshipped him her whole life. Right. Also, he never threw plates at her head. That's important. That is important. The combination of Mama's state of mind and a significant amount of local feuding, this is just ahead of the Civil War, you can see it percolating, caused Papa to sell their house and move the family to a new one. This was pretty traumatic. I mean, a lot of the slaves were sold, and if you think about it, these are really Carrie's family, Mm -hmm. the closest people she knows to her family anyway. Um, So just, just to the neighboring county where Mama got so much worse... And then another sale of goods and more people and another move, this time to a farm outside of Versailles. Versailles, Kentucky. Which bears no resemblance to Versailles, even though it's spelled the same. Home, by the way, of Woodford Reserve Bourbon, a bottle or two of which is sitting right behind me. It's not that far away. (laughs) On this fully stocked marble-topped bar, Beckett's position is made clear. Yes. (laughs) We know where you stand, and I stand right next to you. For about four years, um, there was some measure of stability. Mama had three children she liked now, as well as the one she still didn't like inexplicably. Mm-hmm. I'm so mad at her. Like, what the heck? 
It's your first child. You think you'd have a natural bond to it? No. Well, Papa was an upstanding member of the community, and um, Carrie did go to Sunday school and church, but she sat upstairs with the slaves during service. Tellingly, again, couldn't even sit with the family. Well, she considered them her family. Um, as far as her formal education goes, it's really spotty at best. The family would then move to from Kentucky to Missouri. And while there, she did a stint at a Christian girls' boarding school, but she became ill. She complained of consumption of the bowels. For the next five years or so, Carrie was mostly in bed, whether it was malingering to get attention or whether it was part of the whole prescribed by doctors rest cure for, quote, hysteria, where girls approaching puberty were prescribed bed rest and not allowed to read because their brains would get all inflamed. (laughs) But the one book that was allowed, of course, would be the Bible, because that didn't inflame your brain, I guess. A lot of her education came from the Bible, Sunday school lessons, reading Bible passages. That was her education, and it really propelled her through the rest of her life. <laughs> I just remember going through puberty. It would have been nice to have been sent to bed <laughs> not have to do anything. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Well, and I think it was part of the consciousness that you would turn these tomboys into proper ladies right. by, like, breaking them of the habit of being physically active. It seems mm-hmm. horribly cruel to me. She might have milked it. Well, you know, sometimes we talk about women whose fathers allowed them to study and explore and use their intelligence. This was not that father. Her education was very intermittent. It was spaced out over years. It was not very quality. It was more focused on, you know, proper deportment and Mm. not a whole lot on critical analysis. No, not at all. When Carrie was about 10 and she was coincidentally living in the same county that Beckett does, um, she had a very deep religious experience while at church. Uh, This minister came and spoke to her father and... She was sitting there waiting, and she was overcome with tears and what she described as a strong longing to be better. Um, she was afraid at that moment of landing in hell, which is a great motivator for a lot of people. Um, the next day, she was baptized in a very cold nearby creek. For a Christian, this is a huge life-altering moment in their life. Baptism is your shedding your former self, you're shedding your life of sin, and you are committing yourself to follow Christ for the rest of your life. That's what the symbolism of baptism is. She said, that's it. I'm done with that part. I'm not going to (laughs) sin. Although her description of sin and other people's description of sin may vary. It was a big moment in her life when she converted and fully accepted Christ into her life. The end. I just had to say... That what I wrote was, she was made to feel guilty and scared. So I'm sure that helped a lot. That is how I expressed what just (laughs) happened to me. Yeah. Yes. I I agree. I can't deny that. It happens. That's That's a byproduct of a lot of churches. I speak as a Christian and I'm saying that there are a lot of churches that use fear as a motivator for faith. Well, let's move on to... The war war breaking out. (laughs) So living here, um, we are right on the border between Kansas and Missouri. Kansas was a free state. In fact, still has a free state brewery. Yes, it does. Ironically (laughs) enough. But um, Kansas was a free state and Missouri was a slave state. 30 miles from here, there's a town that had all of its male citizens killed in a raid one day. There were Civil War cannons and a battlefield right there. I am pointing. Where my son and I fly kites. We can walk there. We chase the ice cream truck there, and there's cannons right. sitting there. Uh, people don't typically think of this area. I mean, you know, you you all think of 
you know, South versus North, and you right. hardly ever think of the Midwest, but there are historical markers all up and down my neighborhood. Like, this is the orchard where this happened. Mm-hmm. This is the field hospital where this happened. It's it's a pretty hard Recently, course. my daughter and I went to the Lexington Battlefield historical site in Missouri, in Lexington, Missouri. There is this beautiful house. I mean, if you ever find yourself in that neck of the woods, you should go. Outside of this area, you don't really think of the Civil War as taking place here but it did, and there's bullet holes in this house to prove it. It was actually kind of cool. My daughter loved it. You should go. <laughs> this area was very... Now, think about how confusing it is. Everybody looks the same. They live really close together, but it was a constantly changing front line around here. There's fighters from both sides constantly showing up and eating up all the food and taking all the supplies and... The skirmishes were literally all around them. I mean, all around them. Carrie's family now became refugees. The whole neighborhood, the whole county was on the road to Texas to just get out of danger. You just have to separate yourself from this whole situation. So the formerly grand gilded carriage of Mama, uh, Queen Victoria, whatever her name yeah. is, <laughs> was now full of blankets and food and weeping sick people and all kinds of glamorous things like that. And by the time they got to Texas, honestly, most of their animals were dead and everyone was just horribly sick. There was typhoid fever, I believe, mm-hmm. is what went rampant through the family. And this is a six-week move. I mean, we think of Texas as not being that far away, but by carriage and when you're skirting people trying to, you know, get you for because there's a, there's a war going on. Um, it was hellacious. It was a defining moment of her life. I mean, she it had a big impact on her. Well, and Texas itself just, I mean, excuse my language, sucked. There, the crops failed. There was drought. There was no money. Everyone was hungry. Papa decided their only chance was just to go back to their farm and just dig in. Like, whatever's there, we're just going to, I mean, we're familiar with the area. We know mm-hmm. where to forage there. There's not drought there. Let's just have to deal with whatever we get there. He freed the slaves, though, in Texas and left them to shift for themselves because he said he couldn't afford to take them anymore. Now, it's exhilarating, but can you also see that it's horribly terrifying? You do not know how to fend free. It's awesome that you're free, but you don't have any resources. Right. That's really scary. Well, all the way back, this is, uh, think about little kids. Kara's the oldest, okay, at this point, and she's a young teenager, but all about 15. The- all the way back, you're driving, I mean, trying not to drive over them, dead and wounded Confederate soldiers. The children saw this with their eyeballs out of the windows of the carriage. There's no hiding the carnage no. or the smell. Traumatizing. And then when they got home, everything had been stolen or broken. And now there's nobody to do any work because Mama is as useless as a baby doll. And and it honestly all fell on Carrie and Papa to work morning till night just to get things to a basic level. Later in life, Carrie would say that one of the pitfalls of slavery was that women learned nothing about how to do anything but be decorative. They were sadly deficient, she said. There's nothing useful coming out of these fancy women. Uh -uh. She always hated fancily dressed, useless women the rest of her life. Yeah, it became a huge platform for her later on. And as hard as that time was, she was finally, honestly, needed and had something to do and was no longer sick. Imagine that. Hmm. Hmm. While she was living back up here in Missouri, she did help out in a war hospital that treated both Union and Confederate soldiers. It was it was hard work, but somehow she found some kind of strength from it. She was needed. Well, Carrie Moore at 18 was now a young lady, not a dainty, decorative hothouse flower like her mother had been, but a tall, over six foot tall, striking, 
you know, one of those people that animated her face and, right. and made her, you know, at least, if not attractive, at least interesting. Mm-hmm. She had been made physically very strong, but with plenty of hard work. Right. So she is, you don't have to take care of her. No, she's not frail by any stretch of the imagination. So she, like her father, had become immersed in religion as their comfort during all their trials, and she began to teach Sunday school. Even though she wrote in her diary that she did not love to read the Bible, it seems like such a contradiction. So she started to kind of create her own belief system Mm -hmm. at this point. This is the beginnings of it. She didn't have, like, a formal congregation to go to, so she she picked some things from the slave family that raised her. She picked some things from her father's faith. She picked some things up everywhere she went. Uh, Well, Carrie began to uh, have gentlemen callers, very decorous gentlemen callers they were they might um read something together by the fire or discuss a serious topic but victorian women in general and carrie in particular were taught that men were ravening wolves uh, hoping to get their greasy paws on you or something so there was no hand holding there was no so flirting she talks back. in her in her autobiography of going to balls mm-hmm. you know we imagine you know grim face carrie nation mm-hmm. but at this age she is looking to be courted, and she's going to the Match.com of the Times. But she wouldn't dance the hugging dances because no. they were a sin. No. Her idea of a really fun evening with a gentleman was to exchange ideas, to talk, to see where he came from. Um, so when the new school teacher arrived to board with the family, she was unarmed by experience. Dr. Charles Gloyd, tall, dark, handsome, macho, and well-read, and a speaker of many languages. Oh, this is just too much this for her. Is, this is her thing. She can talk to him. She can learn things from him that she, she didn't have the education. He did. And she was quite taken with him. Um, but she wasn't sure if he was t- with her until one night he kissed her. Oh! <gasps> Well, he, they were passing in a hallway, and he put his arm around her and gave her a smooch, and she fell apart, and she started to cry and thought she was ruined. I know she did. I'm like, whoa, girl, you're, you're okay. <laughs> Calm down. Well, for now, you're okay. Papa and Mama were not about to give this budding relationship an approval. As far as Mama was concerned, who the heck was he to aspire to the daughter of, if not the queen, at least landed gentry? Which, you know, when she married Papa, he was the gentry. But Papa, with feet actually in the real ground somewhere, objected because it was well known that whatever awesome other things he might be, Dr. Charles Gloyd was a notorious drunkard. But Carrie said that when I learned that Dr. Gloyd loved me, I began to love him. And although they were not allowed to sit alone together, they began to exchange letters, which, again... Intellectually, if that's what she's looking for, an intellectual match, this is a good way to do it. Um, they would leave their notes in a volume of Shakespeare that was on the table, which is kind of romantic. Well, that's romance and the forbidden nature of it all, since Papa engineered his removal from the house and made him irresistible. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just saying. After all, you know, she'd never seen him drink anything. Her love would make him stop. So there, Papa. Well, she had a very idealized notion of marriage that... And where did she get that from is what I want to know. Because did you see, I mean. It wasn't her parents. It wasn't her, her, the woman, the slave who raised her. Who also had a really sketchy, weird husband. Yeah. I so don't I don't know, really I'm know. Not sure Maybe it was the fact that Papa lavished all the care on Mama and it didn't matter what Mama did. Papa yeah. was the cherisher. Maybe she was just looking not for ideal marriage. Maybe she was looking for replacement Papa. Maybe. 
Oh. And she adored her father, so finding someone... Yeah, that's a totally legitimate theory. Mm-hmm. Good job. Mm-hmm. Well, within two years, against the wishes of her parents, the two were married. But it was on her wedding day that she began to realize what she was getting into because Charles showed up way past the I love you man phase. <laughs> he mumbled the words of the ceremony he barely looked at her the whole time. And as they were driving away, I mean, everyone's waving. And she spoke, you know, Are you, Charles, what's the matter? And he told her to shut up. And he pushed her away and said, don't touch me. Like, I do. <laughs> he was very mean. So the mm-hmm. happy couple moved in with his parents. And Charles kept his face firmly stuck on that rum bottle. He took to staying away all day and rolling home completely blotto. Carrie, understandably, was completely bewildered. She loved him, and he loved her, right? And and she's wanting these snuggly, cuddly evenings, and he's not home. And when he gets there, he passes out drunk on his bed. Uh, well, she would used to wait up for him every night. And once she went down to the Masonic Temple where he was drinking, and she tried to fetch him. But they pushed her out of the door and basically told her no girls allowed. Yeah, right. Um, and other Masons called her a nag and a nuisance. There was just no... Support for her at all. They just thought she was ridiculous. No wonder he drank. Right. This nag walking down here. Right. Here, let I me mean, buy you another drink. I know. Yeah. So, honestly, therefore, she hated the Masons for the rest of her life. I mean, hated. She called them evil, fraud, anti-Christian, criminal hypocrites. Yeah. She wasn't real big on any type of organized um, fraternity like the Masons. You know, a drunk doctor's not going to have too many patients, so the money dried up. The food got really scarce, and Carrie discovered she was pregnant and spent weeks in the blackest of despair. At this point, she's decided that drinking leads to neglectful wives and that any child that's born from a man who drinks and a woman who's unhappy is is doomed. Until, not officially riding on a white horse, but just as heroic and welcome, Papa hauled her out of there and took her home, and Carrie wrote Charlie every day, take the pledge, take the pledge, you know, and he's all, I can't quit without you, come home. He made her so sad that after Carrie's baby was born, her parents did not even let him know. Well, they didn't like the union to begin with. Now, she named her child Charlene after her husband Charles, so I, maybe she had a fantasy that somehow they would reunite. But she left him, kind of like Ruth leaving in fried green tomatoes, but with him yelling, If you leave, may I'll be dead in six months. And six months later, he was, in fact, dead, and Carrie actually felt guilty. Yeah, responsible. I know about that. This is about when her mom gets committed to an insane asylum where she will later die. The end. Goodbye, Mom. Oh. So let's leave her right now at this really, really low point. And when we come back, let's hope things take a turn for the better. History Chicks are now on Pinterest. We have a board up for each episode, so you can follow your favorite subjects in depth or maybe discover some new ones. There's even a board for the Chicago World's Fair, since it seems to be cropping up in so many episodes these days. To find us, simply go to Pinterest.com and search Pinners for the History Chicks. Easy peasy.
And we're back. At this point, Carrie's first husband has died. She's left her with a small infant and a lot of guilt. She feels so much responsibility, not only for herself and for her daughter, but also for Charles's mother, who she had lived with. So Carrie took charge of her destiny for the first time. Um, Papa had no money to give her, and which grieved him enormously. But he did deed over some town lots that he had bought during a period of, you know, speculation. Mm-hmm. And she was able to sell all but one. She built a house. She got a teaching certificate and secured a job. And her mother-in-law lived with her and took care of the house and baby Charlene. For four solid years, mm-hmm. she had security, and she was very proud of herself. Yeah. She was, until suddenly... One day, she was fired, without warning, ostensibly for teaching children in the wrong accents. Right. She was teaching the children to read, I saw a man, and they wanted her to say, I saw a man. And her argument was, this is how they speak. They should read it the way they speak. And she was replaced by the Board of Education member's niece. So basically, that's the real reason. Yes. Accent, schmaccent. So now what? So she was really in a pickle. She had been supporting her small, unusual family uh, for a very long time, but she couldn't move. Her mother-in-law and her daughter were settled there. They had a home. She couldn't go off to teach anywhere. She also had no income, and she was supporting the family. So Carrie did something that she would do um, for the rest of her life. This was her method. She would go into deep, repetitive prayer, asking for guidance. In this point, she felt as if she needed to get married, that getting married again would solve all the family's problems. So she would go into a deep prayer, and this is what she claims to have said, my Lord, you see the situation. I cannot take care of Mother and Charlene. I want you to help me. I have no one picked out, but I want you to select the one that you think best. Ten days later, she's walking down the street, and she sees David Nation, who is a newspaper editor, and he spoke and she felt a thrill she says through her body she felt that this was the man that god had chosen for her and on his part he was almost 20 years older than she was that uh, she was 25 he had an eight-year-old daughter named lola who needed a mother fair enough that'll work for me you can keep my house sounds good yeah, she, so, again, her, her friends in town weren't really keen on this marriage either but she felt that this was god you know, leading her life and that this was the man for her. So they got married about two months after they met. Now, in fact, ironically, they argued a lot about religion. He was also, in addition to being an editor, a a lawyer. Oh, sorry. Not only a lawyer, but a preacher. He was a man of many parts. But they argued all the time. She was, it must be said, quite a fundamentalist and pretty much called him a fraud. He thought her brand of Christianity verged on hysteria and just took to keeping things from her, which she interpreted as being a big liar head. You can see how this is just a really smooth sailing type of relationship. <laughs> it, she was, made, it was not a happy marriage from the get-go. I, yeah, I wrote, she made him a very unhappy marriage. <laughs> I love, but, you know, I, in, in reading her words, she gives God the credit for bringing them together. So she should give him the blame for what turned out. No, she takes the blame for her responsibility in the marriage. And, but, (laughs) if she didn't have the, if she'd had a happy marriage, she never would have gone on to do the things that God, she believed, had destined for her life. Of course, at the time, she's just in an unhappy marriage again and wondering what the heck is, what, what is she doing wrong? 
Well, poor old David Nation is what I have to say about that. <laughs> they decided to try farming. Her childhood unrolled before her like a dirty old carpet. Failure after failure. The animals died. The situation grew desperate. Mr. Nation took off to find work elsewhere. He was now a suitcase farmer, is what the locals called it. You had a farm, but you had to go elsewhere to find actual money. He left Carrie in the crapper with two children, uh, one mother-in-law, and nothing. Honestly, if it wasn't for the kindness of some neighbors, they'd half starve to death. She tried any number of things in order to make some money. She had a produce stand. She wrote articles for the Galveston News. And ultimately, she, this is a big one, she ran a hotel called the Columbia, which had to be said was a rattle-trap, bug-ridden, ramshackle, questionable hotel. <laughs> uh, but with the help of Lola and Charlene and some local ne'er-do-wells that she fed in exchange for their work. She turned it into a pretty respectable place for travelers to land. And she did make a little bit of an, I mean, enough income to survive. And David was um, minor help. Here's what he did. He got people from the train station and pointed them in the direction of the hotel, which I'm sure was very valuable. It's marketing. <laughs> well, like, when you have the hotel, pretty much they could ask Anybody. Right. Is what I'm yeah, saying. It's not like there's 17 of them <laughs> and you right. got to get your word in. Yeah, you need to stay there. <laughs> but the thing is, this is the point where she realized, you know what? Perhaps a husband wasn't as indispensable as she'd been brought up to believe. Honestly, this is, I think, where it was like, wait yeah. a minute. I'm doing this by myself. I, I don't need did it before. Yeah. I faced adversity and now I'm doing it again. And she ended up doing it again on a grander scale up a hundred miles at the Hotel Richmond, um, where her clientele was well off. Mm -hmm. Even Carrie's wardrobe got a little fancy. A little velvet appeared. Some cameo necklaces. The hair went up. It was a stylish place. Mm -hmm. But um, Charlene was struck down by typhoid fever, which led to a strange disease in her jaw that left her with lockjaw for eight years. I know. Lockjaw. And a hole in her cheek. Now, the typhoid caused the hole in her cheek. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing some research on tetanus. Okay. Oh. oh. Because I tried to find a connection between typhoid and lockjaw, and uh -huh. I couldn't find one. But also very common at the time because it's carried not through rusty nails, as I thought, but through horse manure. And the thing is, it doesn't matter if the horse hasn't been by in 40 years. <gasps> Seriously. The manure, the spores will live that long, and honestly, the slightest bit of wind will blow them up on a fence post, or will blow them onto a piece of barbed wire, or onto your car where you travel to the city, where oh. you cut yourself on a bumper. I mm -hmm. mean, it's like, and um, honestly, I'm creeped out by all my research, and I'm not going to research anything more again except oh. to say, anytime you get a scrape, my friends, just break out. <laughs> I don't even care it, where you are. Have a bottle of hydrogen peroxide, <laughs> because that is no joke. And yeah. it is... Everywhere. Do oh. your own research, but I'm oh, freaked out God. enough that I'm going to keep hiding. I used to step on nails a lot as a kid, which sounds weird, but I did. I, around boat yards, there's the, the wooden... Maybe you just left out that there weren't horses at the boat I yard. Know, right? <laughs> I was forever getting nails taken out of my foot and rushed to get another tetanus shot. So Charlene, struck down by what is probably tetanus, um, had to have some teeth knocked out so she could be fed through a straw. So Carrie was convinced through all this that God was testing her before giving her a calling. There's a famous story in the Bible about a man named Job, and she started to think, Aha! I see some parallels here. Uh -huh. It's all going the way that he planned it. She began accosting people in the street 
and getting in their face and saying, do you love God? Do you love God? She actually got kicked out of a couple different churches after she claimed to have visions. But behind the scenes, she helped the poor of the town with lodging or food or a job. She always remembered how little kindnesses had saved her from starvation on the farm. She paid it forward. Mm -hmm. So I just think that's important that, you know, the middle class might have thought she was a kook, but the lower class regarded her as nigh an angel as they could get a hold of. Right. And it's, and she's reading the Bible and that is very biblical. Practical and help is good yeah. help. She did teach at Sunday schools in traditional congregations, and then the ministers would find out exactly what she was teaching wasn't the doctrine of that church, and she would kind of get booted. She started Bible studies in her hotel, in her dining room. <laughs> so race-based violence began to explode all over their area of Texas during the 1880s. We talked briefly about this in the Ida Wells podcast, episode 25, so you can go deeper into that at that mm-hmm. uh, that episode. But both between races, you know, of course, but also between the tolerant and the non-tolerant of the white population. It, it was a mess. War emotions still ran very deep. And Mr. Nation tried to stay neutral, and as a result, he he really didn't endear himself to either side and was set upon and beaten half to death by a gang of ruffians and soon it was time to move again. But they were pretty much forced out of town by these political parties that are really acting like gangs. Yeah, they are. It's very violent and it's not an environment where they could stay any longer. Although she was perfectly happy for both daughters to get married and stay there. So Right. (laughs) And some say she made Charlene get married. Um, she arranged Charlene's marriage. I think the really sad thing is here, her former mother-in-law had lived with them for all these years, and she was waiting until Carrie got settled in Medicine Lodge to come, and she never lived to go to Kansas. And I believe Carrie deeply loved this woman. I mean, her own mom was, you know. A piece of work. Yeah. She was with her for quite a while, but it's, that was that's very sad. So it was just David and Carrie who moved nearer to his brother in uh, Medicine Lodge, Kansas, population around 700. Now, without a big hotel to run or daughters to micromanage, I'm sorry to say she focused on David. She would sit in the front row when he was preaching and heckle him like a drunk at a comedy show. <laughs> Slower, David, louder, go over that again, stop, you're being ridiculous, no, take that part out. She had no filter. Oh my goodness. It was in her head and out her mouth. Even to the point of telling him, no, you're done, get off. Yeah, (laughs) she never believed that he was supposed to be in the ministry. She believed that his faith that he exhibited was a farce. She took violently against tobacco and had no shame in ripping cigars straight out of men's mouth as she passed them. She's going to the store and she rips the cigars, boop, 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 tosses them in the street. Can you imagine, can you imagine how well that went over? Um, Carrie reserved special freakouts for courting couples. There was... There was a loud lecture that didn't actually say the word ho, but if you let your hand touch a boy's hand, or God forbid you went buggy riding, the whole town was going to know about it. My friend, you loose woman, you hussy. She would push them apart or whack at the boy with her umbrella. Okay, that's weird. All that's real, real weird. But yet, she'd drive her wagon all over town and run her errands, and she'd pay for her items, and then out would come that bag. I'm sure you, Mr. Christian Shopkeeper, would have filled this bag up for the poor. Or from house to house. I see it's Thanksgiving and I see you have an extra fine chicken running around in your yard that you'd like to give to the poor. And honestly, it was easier just to have a box of crap ready to go for her. The whole town kind of saw it like paying protection money so she wouldn't yell at them. (laughs) 
when you go to PetSmart, would you like to pay a dollar to help homeless pets? You feel like a schmuck. You say no. I'm sure that was way worse. She'd say it to her face. You know what? No, I'm keeping that, that chicken. You're not keeping the no. chicken. You're giving it to the You're going to put it in the bag. So both her detractors... Uh, who wanted to keep their chicken, and her admirers called her Mother Nation. So they're just half exasperated and half admiring. Uh, like, she's the president of the PTA. Like, how you feel about that person? Yeah. Holy moly. They're, well, thank but goodness they, someone's doing it. Yes. I'm not going to do it, so you might <laughs> as well. Now, Carrie can't find her particular brand of faith in Medicine Lodge. So she's joining a lot of churches, and then she's getting kicked out of a lot of churches. <laughs> I wonder she, why. She would find fault and call them on it. Maybe a minister drank a little bit or some other sin that she would find out about, and she would publicly call the guy out on it. Now, women in, are not allowed to speak up in the church like this. There's a lot of Christian denominations, even in this time, Lutheran church included, where women can't hold ministry positions. I mean, uh, the lead ministry positions. It, they have biblical reasons for it. But Carrie doesn't care about that. She's following the Bible that she knows and saying, this is wrong. So all these congregations were calling her a stumbling block because she wouldn't follow their rules. Well, and also she'd grab cigarettes right out of the preacher's mouth and go, it's a shame that such a saint has to smell like hell. <laughs> it's really bad. I know. <laughs> um, when she joined the Baptist church, the minister's wife introduced her to the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So Temperance, which really means, you know, moderation, had been growing in the United States since about the 1820s. But but really, this was its heyday. A little back in the 1870s, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, their main objective was total abstinence from, quote, harmful things. Moderation was for good things. Abstinence was for bad things. They were very strongly invested in teaching the young to not get into drinking from a very, very early age. They had all these pamphlets that talked about, why don't you drink from God's bottle, by which they meant an apple? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Observe the juice he has created for you, the wholesomeness of the... Or let it ferment. <laughs> that no. was not in the program. <laughs> but they had this thing, this experiment that they encouraged public school teachers to do, where you'd have a dish with a calf brain in it, and then you'd pour alcohol over it. And sure enough... The pink brain would turn gray, and they would simply say, see, children, what happens when you poison your mind with alcohol? This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? <laughs> but that was very effective. I mean, even for us, seeing the egg sizzling. I suppose so, and I imagine seeing a calf brain at all might be a little off-putting, much less one well, of the farmer kid, you probably saw a lot of calf brains. Ugh. You probably ate a lot of calf brains. That's probably true. With scrambled <laughs> eggs, which is the worst texture I can think of right now. My husband eats brains and eggs. And I kissed him with that mouth. This is what I had to say about that blurb. Um, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, more usefully, installed public drinking fountains in towns and cities all over the Midwest, some of which can still be found. They're finding new ones. All the time. We'll put, we'll provide you with a link to the website where they can, you can see the pictures. They're really neat. There's, of course, a place where people could get buckets of water for their household or they can drink. There's a medium size for the side that horses can get refreshed on the side. And then there's a very low down thing where dogs could have a little drink. It was a very useful piece of machinery. So anyway, one thing she did not think 
that she was going to have to address was liquor. For Kansas, the whole state had been dry since 1880. So there's no alcohol in Medicine Lodge, right? Au contraire. Oh. Mother Nation. Imagine her surprise when she found out that there were at least six well-known quasi-public saloons. Saloons being illegal, these were called joints. Oh, yes. Subterfuge. <laughs> uh, in her town. Her town of 700 people. Half of them are women or children. So, I mean. So, basically, six saloons for 350 guys. Right. Nice. So, the authorities turned a blind eye, which enraged her. So, she took to greeting the proprietors of such establishments with pleasantries such as, Oh, hello, Mr. Creator of Widows and Orphans, or hello, Mr. Corrupter of Souls. But when embarrassment or public outing failed to do the trick, she decided that maybe she had to ramp it up a little. Carrie helped establish the county's Women's Christian Temperance Union, and one of the positions in this in the union was a jail evangelist. Finally, an audience that can't run away! <laughs> <laughs> and she would go to the prisons, and she was a liaison between the union and the prisons. And she felt that every single prisoner that she spoke with was there somehow because of drink. So she set about to close down every single joint in Medicine Lodge. That was going to be her mission. So here's the initial strategy. She and her stoic friends, Kate Kane, stood and sang church songs right in front of the door of Matt Strong's joint and praying out loud for his heart to turn. His stomach turned when the enormous crowd in town for market day did not want to pass the ladies and come in and spend their money. Um, Carrie Nation tried to storm into the joint. Didn't that sound like 1940s? She tried to storm the joint. <laughs> But Mr. Strong, true to his name, kind of manhandled her back out again. She vowed to come back, and then she brought a whole force of ladies to sing and pray in front of his his joint. And eventually, she moved that operation from joint to joint and drove three of the saloons out of town. And the law decided, after some embarrassing attention, that they'd better go ahead and arrest and charge the other ones. So it was a victory for it Carrie. Was a, it was a huge victory. The, her one mission that she decided to embark on was a complete success. Well, Medicine Lodge was now dry. Now, I will tell you, not everybody was happy with that situation. Most of the windows in her house got broken out. And someone even cut through the harness on her buggy and caused her to have quite a serious accident. So, And then she was also very shocked because she went back to the jail. And the men in the jail, the prisoners had a bad attitude about this. And they said, what else? We'll just go to Kiowa. It's not like it's a big deal. They sell it door to door there, out of wagons and barrels. A guy comes by. You just, it's not a big deal. We'll just get it somewhere else. Right. So hooray for your little plan. Yeah. And that made her <laughs> pretty mad. So she reported the Kiowa lawbreakers to the county attorney. And he acted like you or I might act if a kindergartner said to you, he said the word poop. The toddler is expecting hellfire to rain down on the perpetrator and is surprised when the authority figure laughs instead. She accused him of taking bribes. Oh, I see how it is. You're taking bribes then. And he simply slapped her with a slander suit. And, of course, she ended up having to pay a dollar. Woo! Except the court costs were $200, which is really, I mean, it's like 7000 bucks in today's money. That's, That's a lot. And enough that they had to put a lien on her house. Mm-hmm. So now, that's serious, real-time consequences of her actions now. What to do? What to do? She took to wandering the streets wearing a burlap sack with ashes sprinkled on her head. Which, 
was surprisingly ineffective. Just get into her head for a second. She felt she was doing God's work. She had had success doing this work, and suddenly she's been she's given all these <laughs> stumbling blocks, barricades in front of her that she can no longer do what she felt that God led her to do. So of course she's going to adopt the garb of John the Baptist. <laughs> So, when that proved to be non-galvanizing for the population at large, she went back in her house and started randomly opening her Bible to answer the daily questions of her life. It's called Bibliomancy. You can do it with any book. That's the Biblio book. But on one fateful day, the verse she randomly landed on when she asked the question, What should I do? was this. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. And the voices in her head told her to take some weapon and smash up her enemies. She said, a woman is stripped of everything by saloons. Her husband is torn from her. She is robbed of her sons, her home, her food, her virtue. Truly does the saloon make a woman bare of all things. Imagine how you think of Carrie Nation. The, don't, not the hatchet? No, no. No hatchet, no hatchet yet. yet. Right. She's taken on this uh, very um, old-fashioned dress, dark, the way you think of her, with the bonnet and the modest dress. And and so it begins. Imagine you're sitting with your dudes at Dobson's Saloon. Your jackets are blissfully off in the heat of a June afternoon. There's no women in here. It can't be improper, right? Glass of whiskey in your hand. When this six-foot-tall, 200-pound extremely respectably dressed woman steps through the front door. Your brain's all frozen. Okay, there's there's a woman in here. What's she taking out of that satchel? And that's about all you have time for. Rocks are flying everywhere. A brick smashes the glass right out of your hand. Mr. Dobson runs over to stop her, but she says, I told you to stop in the spring, and you didn't listen to me, so get out of the way. And she smashed the mirror right behind his head. And this wasn't like a random, she didn't just walk by. She had been planning this for a very mm-hmm. long time. She would pick up rocks and bricks around on her on her rounds, going to collect food for the poor or work her Sunday school. And she'd wrap them carefully in newspaper and collected smashers, she called them. Well, holy crap. You know, the customers just ran out the back. Uh, Mr. Dobson just hid in the corner, and soon the place was completely wrecked. She reloaded and hit two more joints that day. <laughs> she did, and she felt that the Holy Spirit was with her and empowering her. I, I, I've had the Holy Spirit, I believe, empowering me through time, but I've also had adrenaline powering me through time. At one point, <laughs> she stood in the street with the crowd and said, somebody get me a sledgehammer from the blacksmith, and people just went and did it. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but let's get a sled, you know. Oh, my gosh, this is awesome. The spectacle alone yeah. was worth the price of admission, which was free. <laughs> so she got in her buggy. She just got in her buggy. Her hair was probably all messed up. She might be a little dirty. Her face was probably red, flushed with excitement. So she just gets back in her wagon, and she's like, um, you know, if I broke in a law, put me in jail. Otherwise, your mayor's the criminal. And then she just drove home as if, what? <laughs> There's no real repercussions for her actions. Well, the joints were illegal. Um, it was a tough one for the authorities. It was a tough one for the women of the temperance movement, too. Like, wow, good results. Bad press. <laughs> they weren't sure. Is she embarrassing or is she awesome? They, like, were kind of divided about that. Well, she'd been trying to work through the system. And the system wasn't working. So she took things in her own hands to make action happen. In the simplest terms, that's something we admire. Some actually tried 
to publicly defend her actions. They said, well, we all make mistakes. We all follow crooked paths. And she said, well, no, there was nothing crooked about it. I rolled up those rocks as straight as I could. I put them straight in a box. I drove straight to Kiowa, and I threw them as straight as I could. I did not make a crooked step in smashing. I own it. Again, in the simplest terms, gotta love it. That's true. Spectacular entree into the public forum, my friend. Let's leave her there, basking in the glow of her successful destruction of property. And when we come back, we'll talk about the escalation and her national fame. has had her first smashing success and feels led to go on to bigger and better things. It's 1900, and she is 54 years old. For those of you who like your list of women who get into their groove at a later age, (laughs) she is 54. This is her thing, and she's just starting it. So she's looking at a bigger stage to perform what she believes is divinely led actions. So Carrie Nation took the train to Wichita, Kansas, my hometown, and set her sights on the Carrie House Hotel. Confusing. C-A-R-E-Y. No relation. Um, since that's so confusing in an audio podcast, we're going to call it by its slightly later name, which is the Eaton Hotel. But just know that during the whole time she was messing with it, it was the Carrie House Hotel. In addition to her rock, she's decided that a better tool for the job might be a rod of iron and a cane. A rock can only hit one thing, but a cane or iron rod could hit several. So the Eaton Hotel's bar was famous. In fact, part of the structure was made of blocks of stucco from the 1893 Columbian Exposition, which has been appearing in every show possible. The bar was 50 feet long. It was made of cherry wood. The decanters were cut crystal. The huge mirror behind the bar was from Venice and was one of the finest not only in the West but in America. But the showstopper was a life-size painting by John Noble called Cleopatra at the Roman Bath. Now, it's hot. And obviously, Cleopatra, well, she was about to take a bath. Um, And there were some naked handmaidens in the picture, too. So the painting got the first rock when Carrie Nation walked in that door. I think her arm just spasmed that rock into the painting. Well, she had that whole thing about liquor stripping down women, and here it was. Life-size Cleopatra. It's a sign. Notification. Billboard. So she, yeah, she shrieked when she saw it and called the the bar a hellhole, but she broke that Venetian mirror. Bam! She took an iron rod to the chandelier, broke the bottles, bent up the nice brass rail, ruined the woodwork, ended up doing $100,000 in today's money in damage to the poor old Eden House bar. The picture of Cleopatra, incidentally, is missing. It went on tour, ironically, with a brewery's kind of like their Oktoberfest yeah. <laughs> tour or something. Um, and somewhere in Maryland, it 
disappeared sometime before 1936 because Wichita tried to get a hold of it to put it in their museum, but uh-huh. no one can find it. There is a picture of it, weirdly, in the aftermath of that destruction at the Eden Hotel. You can see a reflection of poor old Cleopatra in the mirror. So check your attics, especially if you live in Maryland or Delaware. Antiques Roadshow might be wanting to talk to you. So that wasn't the only bar she got that day, because by 8.30 in the morning, she had smashed up another bar. This was the first time, though certainly not the last, that Carrie Nation would find herself in jail. She was charged with malicious destruction of property, and she snapped back, I think you mean destruction of malicious property. See what she did there? Yeah. Yeah, it didn't amuse them either, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, she was in jail for six months until finally she was released after the county attorney declared that he had concern for her mental state. Well, she spent a lot of her time in prayer, kneeling in front, as was her way, a chair with the Bible on it, reading and praying. Well, she walked out of the jail and to a man that she encountered, I am so happy to see you, young man, like the sun is shining, it's a beautiful day. And he replied, I'm not very happy to see you, because it was the painter John Noble whose painting Cleopatra had been wrecked. (laughs) What are the chances? But did she take this out, that they let her out of jail because of mental distress? She did not. She was released on the 12th. The charges were dropped on the 18th, and on January 21st, she, now wielding her famous hatchet, here we go, and three other women had smashed two more bars and were back in the pokey. And a mob of 100 men are outside with a rope, and they want to come drag her out and lynch her. But luckily, the authorities held firm and wouldn't let that happen. She posted bail, and insurance companies all over Kansas canceled their policies on buildings that held saloons. (laughs) Which I think is funny. So, see the impact already? Yeah, that's huge. There's financial impacts. That's a success point for her. Yeah, it must feel like success. Yes, because she kind of goes on tour. She went to Enterprise, Kansas, where she got in a brawl with a saloon owner's wife during a speech on a street corner and finished her speech holding a beefsteak over her eye. But this becomes her pattern. You know, she goes to a town. She smashes the bar. She speaks. She gets arrested. Now, Enterprise wasn't done with her because she tried to smash the bars in Enterprise, and not only did the rotten eggs come out, but they had been saving for this occasion. She was badly beaten by a mob uh, and chased out of town. The law enforcement had to save her from being killed and put her on a train. (laughs) Really, madam, (laughs) get out. So to Topeka, the capital where she was almost killed again. But she succeeded in galvanizing law enforcement to start shutting down the saloons on their own. She must have been a very compelling speaker. Somehow, there must have been something about her that people listened to. I mean, okay, technically she had the law on her side, although she was hypocritically breaking it. She was able to garner support. Showing the differing opinions of her and the problem everyone was having with her behavior The Women's Christian Temperance Union had a state meeting in Topeka while she was there, and the authorities of that union specifically disinvited her. And when she showed up in the back of the hall, the speaker that was talking stopped her speech, switched to an introduction of Carrie Nation, and brought her up on stage to great applause from the population of the meeting. Mm -hmm. So while the organizers were like, do not set foot 
in this meeting. She shows up and everybody's so happy to see her. She rallied them. Her admirers outnumbered her detractors at that meeting, for sure. In fact, a collection was taken up at the meeting and they awarded her a gold medal stamped the bravest woman in Kansas. Kansas is weird. <laughs> That's your home state, so you can say that. I can say it. I'm not going to say it. Well, this is where she started selling little pewter souvenir hatchets. A man ran up to her, having made some. See her fame. He's like, oh, I hope I get to talk to her because I have such a good idea. You know, he ran up. You could sell these and make money for your legal defense fund. <laughs> Yes, I uh, have written to fund her operation, but it really was for bail. Which doesn't sound as good, does it? She started to use her name as her slogan. It's carry a nation. Carry a nation. I'm going to lead this nation. At one point, she even trademarked that name. So she began to start what she called Mothers and Sisters Clubs to continue her good work and, quote, make home life uncomfortable for the drinker by being a home defender. Busybody. Seriously. That's all I have to say about that. But she got people. But the hatchetization continued. She had developed this scythe technique she was very proud of. She'd bring it down across the liquor bottles as if God were harvesting grass with a scythe. She actually had a children's army destroy a saloon at one point. That's a crusade that I'm not entirely sure I want my small child coming home reeking of bourbon and whiskey, but that's just me. As long as he doesn't lick his sleeve or suck on his shirt, I guess it would be okay. At the same time, they're giving these people brandy for toothache. So, whatever. <laughs> anyway, her fame was such that a temperance orator offered to pay her $700, which sounds, it's $25,000 today. Mm-hmm. Plus expenses to break out and go on a speaking tour of the Midwest. Big cities now, like like Omaha, Des Moines, Chicago, yes. But if she went on any raids and did any hatchetizing, offer withdrawn, if you couldn't count on her. So she really did jump at it. The really, it was not that much of a success. I mean, people loved to come see her at the train station, and but they didn't want to pay to go see her speak. Right. <laughs> so it was like a financial, mm, not so good, but really good PR. Although in Des Moines, she was flat out told, look you, in Des Moines, these saloons are legal. So if you destroy one, you really are committing a crime. Right. Here. Just to let you know. What I didn't research, which I ought to have researched, is at what point did they make them legal? <laughs> did they just try to do that to prevent her from... <laughs> I don't really One step know. ahead of Carrie Nation. I don't know. And I'm sorry to say that in Chicago, she was pretty much a joke. I'm, I'm sorry to say. She spotted another nude piece of art in a bar in Chicago and objected to it, so the proprietor draped it in see-through fabric and put up a sign, clothed by order of Carrie Nation of Kansas. Actually, that's a testament to her popularity, that she was able to be used as a object of ridicule. Well, but bars all <laughs> over the United States had signs up that said, all nations welcome but Carrie. I know. Yeah, it was very, yeah, she was family. Um, her quote, manager was an anti-prohibitionist in disguise, and he tricked her into another speaking tour. This one, unfortunately, where she was made a figure of fun. Let's just say she was not booked in front of sympathetic audiences. So the enraged Carrie, you know, the next year was just full of jail stays. <laughs> and one unfortunately waggish bar in St. Louis named the Carrie Nation Bar that shocked the crap out of her that she could not close down because she was met at the door with a revolver to her forehead. 
During her time in jail, she started publishing a paper called The Smasher's Mail. Basically, just editorials by Carrie, and then letters she received from supporters, like a blog. People sent her hatchets from all over, including gold and silver jewelry hatchets, which is actually kind of cool. And the Women's Christian Temperance Union was still helping her. They distanced themselves publicly from her, but they were still siphoning money towards her legal defense funds. <laughs> but they actually said, and I quote, Mrs. Nation's hatchet has done more to frighten the liquor sellers and awaken the sleeping consciousness of Kansas voters than the entire official state has done. But they had to take a stand at some point and said, but she's not, that's not our method. She's not with us, man. And to this day, you can't find her name mentioned on the WCTU's website. Although, she's on a fountain. But I'll get back to that. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Um, Okay, so, Carrie's 55 now, and David Nation, that most henpecked and mild-mannered of husbands, finally had had enough and filed for divorce in 1901. So Um, 24 years they were married. Well, he posted cruelty and desertion as the reasons. Well, the judge could clearly see that Carrie Nation was not at home, I guess, being all over the papers as she was. But so basically it was desertion. They threw out the cruelty. So it was time to regroup. Refocus. She stayed very busy. She wrote her autobiography, The Use and Need of the Life of Carrie Nation, which is, is it on Gutenberg? It's, you, it's completely yeah, it's, readable online. Yeah, absolutely. I read the whole thing online and I'll talk about that in the media section, but yeah, and she's all over the place. I mean, I don't, it wasn't edited. I mean, you know, you want a little more substance, I think, if in a literary document, yeah. but it spells out her life from her point of view and in, in her voice, which is kind of, Good. She um, wrote a temperance play called The War on Drink. She took acting lessons and rolled and acted out on the vaudeville circuit. She was in the vaudeville circuit. I mean, we're uh, this just amazed me. I didn't know. But it's kind of, the vaudeville was kind of like the internet of the early 1900s. If you had a stance, you could go and there they'd give you the platform. But you had to be open yourself up. To ridicule and failure. You succeeded on vaudeville or you didn't. And she actually succeeded for quite a while. What she would do for her shows was there would be a breakaway saloon that she'd walk in, she'd give her platform, and then she'd take her hatchet to this saloon that would break down every single show. And people would cheer her wildly until they didn't. She did this for about four years uh, until she took her show across to the Great Britain and her message and her methods proved unsuccessful, and she bailed back to the U.S. Well, I have to tell you, she was either cheered or vegetabled all over Britain and became this very despised person on the way back on the boat when she spotted the stewards on the ship bringing alcoholic beverages to the women, and mm-hmm. she lost her crap and scared the captain into literally forbidding the stewards from bringing any more alcohol to women. Oh, but the men could drink. So I'm on a two-week cruise back, and I can't have my Lillet and soda, dang you, is all I'm saying. She's not very popular. No. No. And she's going to be criticizing the fanciness of my shoes the whole time. It's totally fun. (laughs) What a totally fun trip I have booked back to the United States. But she established a home for drunkards, wives, and mothers in Kansas City, Kansas, continued her speaking tour under new management, i.e. herself, way better, and she started a new paper called The Hatchet. Now, in today's money, just with subscriptions, she made $123,000 from that paper. There's an issue in 1905 um, where there's an article called Little Boys about 
mm, not having solo playtime, which landed her an obscenity charge and a ban for that issue forever from the United States mail. <laughs> so there's that. That's my polite giggle. So she bought a farm, not the farm, not yet. <laughs> I'm and- sorry. <laughs> Oh okay. Goodness. Maybe we need a drink. Um, she <laughs> she bought an actual place with you know land and chicken and carrots sticking out of the ground, and it held her attention for about five minutes until she went off again. New York City loved her because the exotic Wild West was very 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 big, except for the Vanderbilts, who <laughs> she accosted Mrs. Alfred Vanderbilt and didn't exactly say the word hoe, <laughs> but the basic tenet is you bosomy hoe, put some clothes on. There are other women in this city who have different professions than you who also wear those same clothes, but you should know better. So she was kind of like the repelling, attractive, Wild West psycho of society because they were like, that seriously just happened to you guys. That happened. No one really knew. Like She was consistent. I mean, she she was consistent wherever she went. She didn't care that that was Vanderbilt and you needn't, like, open your face about that. But whatever. That was funny. She was right in the middle of a speech in this second speaking tour. In fact, in Basin Park, Arkansas, which I don't know anything about. I know nothing. I've never heard of it. Um, when she suffered what is supposed to be a stroke, because she looked around, suddenly was very confused. She's right in the middle of a sentence. And and she simply said, I have done what I could, and left the stage. Uh, she was sent to a mental hospital in Leavenworth, Kansas, where she died on June 9th, 1911. My birthday. <laughs> Send your cards. Age 64. Of heart failure. Right after she died, the newspapers, the more disreputable of them, tried to womp up some controversy again. Like, guess what? She died of syphilis. Oh, really? Yeah. Really she did? Yeah. I don't think so. No. But, you know, any number of bad things were trotted out. And you know what? I will say the Women's Christian Temperance Union, who honestly did not know what the heck to do with her while she was alive, came out in force for her funeral, um, which was held the next day. Choirs, there were speeches. They came out all masked, the white ribboners, as they were called. If you were a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, you wore a white ribbon pinned to Mm -hmm. your bodice as a sign to others that that you belonged to the group. So they came out in force to attend her funeral years after she'd been buried in Belton, which is within striking distance of her. I struck. Um, and her grave had no marker on it for 13 years, by which time the Cary Nation Monument Foundation had collected enough money to put up an impressive marble stone, which reads, It reads, Faithful to the cause of prohibition, she hath done what she could. In addition, right near where Cary was first arrested in Wichita, across from the Eaton Hotel, which was then the Cary Hotel, the Women's Christian Temperance Union put up a drinking fountain, as they were wont to do, but this one was dedicated to her work. Though, it must be said, a local historian has said that they purposely waited to dedicate it until she was dead so that she wouldn't show up at the ceremony. We will post a picture of it, historically inaccurate, hatchet and all, because remember, in Wichita, there was not yet a hatchet. Mm -hmm. They weren't thinking that way. Uh, Remember, Cleopatra's picture met a rock, not a hatchet. But there's no point going to see it. It's in the middle of a downtown park known for staggering hobos, and it was so scary to even me that I sent my poor husband in there among them to take my photo. 
So enjoy or mourn the irony, as you wish, that her freaking fountain is now used by people that are completely... Um, the people she was trying to save. Yes. In a way. So there is a serious irony to it being in that park. Okay. <laughs> now, whether you admire her tactics or despise them, you have to admit her work against liquor has had lasting effects in Kansas. Try buying, say, a bottle of Prosecco in the grocery store across State Line Road. It's not going to happen. Even now, four minutes from here and over a 100 years later, <laughs> it's not going to happen. But more seriously, she got people talking and organized and motivated. And really, there was a direct line, a straight line, as Carrie might say, between the 18th Amendment, which is prohibition, in 1920, which she, of course, never lived to see, and her work. There is a straight line between those two facts. And of course, the 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition and pretty much said that her vision of a liquor-free United States would cure crime, was a failure. So there's another straight line, but... but. No, no, let's go back to a positive for the end okay. game. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. The 21st Amendment kind of proved her to be wrong, but... What about the 19th Amendment, which, of course, gives women the right to vote? What is that all about, you say? Ah, it was a concept heavily blocked all along by the powerful brewers and distillers lobby until the teeth went out of their opposition due to prohibition. So perhaps when you go down to the polling place, if you're a lady, and you cast your vote, you might be indebted to the crazy... Off-color work of Carrie Nation for your right to vote. How's that for a legacy? So now... I like that, too. We are holding (laughs) in a vastly inappropriate type of scenario... Completely. ...a bourbon tasting at my dining room table. Yes. I'm on my second, and I like them both a great deal. Although, I have to admit, the first one was had a lot more flavor. The first one would be Woodford Reserve in homage... To Carrie Nation stay in Versailles. But this one is also very tasty. Maker's Mark is the second. She has these delightful Mad Men type glasses. <laughs> Seriously, she just swallowed. It's not like... <laughs> <laughs> Bourbon Mommies. It's a new podcast. So moving on to serious topics serious. besides the wildly inappropriate bourbon tasting. Okay. Uh, okay, so as to media, books. I have a really good book called Cyclone Carry by Carlton Beals. Now, it's the one that I read that was more of a storytelling, and I believe he got a lot of his information from the autobiography also. More serious and academic, Carry A Nation, Retelling the Life by Fran Grace, um, which does go a lot into her religious motivation. So if that's your thing, this is the book for you. And I will say, Beckett's library did have these um, books, my library system did not. So she's not, it's not one of the, like a lot of the women that we cover, there's a lot of books out there, there's a lot of media related to them. Carrie Nation is not one of them. Well, there's a young adult, um, Carrie A. Nation, Saloon Smasher and Prohibitionist by Bonnie Carmen Harvey. That's really written, I'd say for the 12 to 14s. And then, of course, her autobiography, which you can either read or, of course, find online for freezies. Yeah, it's Google um, eBooks has it. It's The Use and Need of a Life by Carrie A. Nation. And like I said earlier, it's really written in her voice. You can hear her. Um, it's not well edited, and there's a lot of grammatical mistakes. But 
It's very interesting to hear, obviously, to hear her perspective of her life. Now, there are several books I had that are mostly about prohibition and temperance, but in which Carrie Nation appears in pivotal chapters. Of course she does. Prohibition XXX by Edward Bear and Last Call by Daniel Okrent. Um, I did find a couple compilations that I liked. Um, and I kind of geeked out on both of them, just going away from Carrie, but just to the other women that were um, profiled. One is American Women Activist Writings, an anthology from 1637 to 2002, which was edited by Catherine Cullen DuPont. And the other one that I absolutely <laughs> adored, I, I mean, I, I just adored this book so much that I might actually buy it because I'm just fascinated by by vaudeville and the power of it. It's called Women Vaudeville Stars, 80 Biographical Profiles by Armand Fields. And it's it's separated by the types of acts that they were, male impersonators, actors, dancers, comedians. Carrie was under novelty acts. But she's not alone. Who else is under novelty acts? Helen Keller. Nice. Yep. Uh, Anna Ava Fay, Annette Kellerman. Annette Kellerman. Annette Kellerman and Evelyn Nesbitt. Evelyn Nesbitt was a novelty act. All women. Yeah, she That's gets, awesome. She actually gets requested quite a bit. I know. Um, okay, so as to the internet, there, uh, the Kansas Historical Society, KSHS.org, has a really good little series, including lots of photos on the life of Carrie Nation, including a little quiz for when you're done looking. PBS.org has a video called Women of Prohibition. We'll put those on Pinterest and on our website. There is a movie I cannot find anywhere. It's referenced in IMDb. It's from 1902, and it is an actress playing Carrie Nation, smashing a saloon. It is a motion picture short from 1902, and I literally can't find it. So, that is your task. Yes, should you choose to accept. If you find it, let us know. In addition, there is the WCTU site, if that's your thing. It's only $10 to join. If not, there on that website also is a link to the fountains that they have located from historical installations by their members in the 1800s. So that's pretty neat. As well as all the platforms that they support today. So it's kind of, you don't think, oh, they're still around they are still around, and they're still active. You cannot find any mention of Carrie Nation anywhere on their website. However, she's on the fountain in Wichita. Mm-hmm. Her name is associated with them there, so. And they paid for her headstone. If you find yourself in south-central Kansas, you can head to the Medicine Lodge house where she lived with David Nation. Um, it's a, a it's a museum that you could tour now. Also, Hatchet Hall in Eureka Springs, Kansas. It's not open to the public, but it is a landmark, and it's marked. For us, I did my pilgrimage by going to Belton, Missouri, with a girlfriend of mine, and I went to her grave. I debated <laughs> whether or not to have a drink, which I'm sure a lot of people do at Carrie Nation's grave, but I did not out of respect because it's a cemetery. In Belton, there's also downtown Belton, Missouri. There's also the Belton Historical Society that has the hearse that took her from Kansas to Belton, as well as it's in a carriage house along with some other memorabilia, including a wicker casket. And when I called the woman who ran the museum, I'm like, what's the deal with the wicker casket? She said it's not what Carrie is buried in. It's just period. But it's beautiful and fascinating, and it's in the front window. Um, also highlighted in the Belton Historical Society Museum is Harry S. Truman and Dale Carnegie. There is an opera entitled Smash, the Carrie Nation Story, 
website is smashtheopera.com. Current tour is sponsored by a brewer and a winemaker, so you see not everyone is as loath to pin their wagon to that star as we are, perhaps. Um, It will be at the Fringe NYC Festival in 2014 from August 8th to 24th. So if you would like to see such an opera, please check out the Fringe Festival, which is awesome, too. And um, buy your tickets on that website, which we'll provide you the link to. And I might say again, although I really, I swear this has a point, the Oscar Getz Museum of Whiskey History in Bardstown, Kentucky. I went there once on a field trip and did a little mini cast from there. We'll link you to that show. But uh, there is a whole hall of Prohibition memorabilia, making this a legitimate... <laughs> offering for this podcast, including some of Carrie Nation's souvenir hatchets are there, too. And for the geeks among you, like myself, there is a geocache in Kiowa, Kansas, called John Barleycorn Must Die. I can't tell you where it is. Oh, it's so appropriate to Carrie Nation, but I'm not going to tell you where it is in (laughs) Kiowa. Because that's cheating, according to geocache rules. But anyway, um, we'll provide you with the link to geocaching.org. It's a fine hobby to get into, especially for the summer. And it really does lead you to some historical sites you might not have otherwise seen. We find statues and fountains hidden in our own town. There is the famous six-hour Ken Burns documentary, Prohibition, which, I mean, Ken Burns, hello. Six hours just flies by like that. (laughs) And she plays, you know, she's not the star, but plays a pivotal role in a certain chapter of said story. Right. So in closing, Carrie Nation was extreme, but passionate in what she believed in, and genuine in her desire to help weaker members of society. Why did you do it, she was asked. And let's close with her reply. Well, you refused me the vote, so I had to use a rock. Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. Listen to us on Stitcher, the super fabulous radio app of tomorrow. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.medio.com.
out tonight.